Well, Mel Gibson, this is one piece of crap the world will never have to suffer through. <laughs> I am so clever. That's why they picked me to convince Congress to go to war. There is no just cause for an invasion of Iraq. Well, that may be. But what we're all forgetting is anyone who doesn't want to go to war is gay. I want to go to war. Oh, yes, yes, yes. We should definitely go. I was the first one who wanted to go to war. Welcome back, Shufflers. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to your favorite 2000s podcast. Today, we're going to be stepping away from the Boondock Saints 2 and Halo to talk about a less important subject. The Iraq War, one of the most defining events of the 2000s, specifically how the media sold us the war as a good idea. And we're going to be covering the journalists that were responsible for this and what they're up to today, because as you'll see, they're the cute, fun faces that you now see on NBC's Morning Joe and writing for the Washington Post. It's Britney, bitch. George Bush doesn't care about black people. Our ed- education, like such as South Africa and uh, the Iraq, everywhere, like such as. And we sitting here, I supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Ouch, Charlie! Ow! Our next door neighbors are foreign countries. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank you. Now watch this drive. Thanks again for coming on today, Al. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. I was going to say, like, this episode was so intimidating. It takes a, a courageous person to, to step into the arena on this one. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Iraq war is like really this big open wound where like people like, you know, there, there's people like fucking Larry Summers coming out. Why can't people trust society anymore? Why is there no faith institutions? It's like, well, the media, academia, the government, the military industrial conflicts, basically everyone in positions of power kind of post 9-11 in America lied about what things would be and what that foreign policy meant. Fest. And, you know, I think we can get into it with Megan McArdle uh, and just burning trillions of dollars that could have been bridges, roads, bus stops, college grants, healthcare, all that good stuff. So, okay, let's start the show. Welcome to Remember Shuffle. My name is Ben. With me, as always, is my co host, Jordano. And Hello. joining us this week, our expert guest, a real, a real news head, a guy who's really poisoned his brain on the media, Al from Brooklyn. Thank you for having me, boys. Today, our topic of discussion is op eds on the Iraq war specifically from two horrible commentators, Megan McGriddle and Joe Scarborough. Jordano, why did we choose these two particular individuals? There are so many takes from the Y2K era on the Iraq (laughs) war. What makes these two motherfuckers special? We've noticed that our episodes that are about a more popular topic do better. And I told my dad about this topic and he's like, no one's ever heard of this. But this is essentially our first Iraq war episode. Everybody's heard of the Iraq war, I would hope. (laughs) And this part is based around the idea of selling the war. So you have people in the media who were really gung-ho about going to war. And I didn't really realize it until I started reading a bunch of articles from 2003, but they were basically bullying you (laughs) in supporting it. And these people that we're going to talk about, Megan McArdle, who we'll we'll probably exclusively refer to as Megan McGriddle, and Joe Scarborough, they were really, really wrong about Iraq. They were basically bullying the public into invading a foreign country. And they keep moving they, up. They, they just they just keep failing upwards. It doesn't matter how wrong you are. Can you get the people stoked? Can you get the people going? Look, you got to manufacture some consent. Mm-hmm. 20 years on, you know, and 
time for a reboot. Megan McArdle, she's talking about Taiwan. She's talking about some things in Latin America. You know, she's got some ideas. She's run some auction plays. So back to hustle. <laughs> and we're going to go on the record. Remember Shuffle? Anti-Iraq war. We have always thought, bad idea. And I think one thing that frustrates me, one thing that makes me feel fucking gaslit about the Iraq war is that it is the single worst thing to have happened in my lifetime, probably. If you look at the cascading effects of Iraq, if you look at the rise of ISIS, if you look at the rise of the national security state, if you look at the the 2015 refugee crisis, which led to the legitimizing of the far right in Europe, the cascading knock-on effects of this thing are responsible for so much of what is bad now. You can all trace it back to this 2003 destruction of this country. Not to mention, of course, the thing you should never forget is the probably one million Iraqis who died just in the after the 2003 war, let alone the hundreds of thousands of people who died of starvation during the sanctions in the 90s. Just what has been done to this country is fucking reprehensible. And we're going to hear about how it was a great thing that America just goofed up a little bit, okay? The intentions were good. And like, I'm sorry, have you never screwed up at work? Who are you? <laughs> the framework was wrong. It was the Iraqis who couldn't handle it. Uh, that's a, that's a, a paraphrase of a, a recent David Frum tweet. God. I just want to reiterate that these people, the people who sold us this war and were so vitriolic about invading Iraq are now, Megan McArdle is a columnist at the Washington Post. The motherfucking democracy dies in darkness, Washington Post. Mm. There were no repercussions at all for these people. They basically just kept getting better and better jobs. Joe Scarborough is now the host of Morning Joe, America's favorite morning news program. I think, Ben, you mentioned that he's MSNBC's second highest paid journalist. Quote unquote journalist, yes. <laughs> yeah, after Rachel Maddow, they paid Joey Scarbs $13 million a year. And his shtick on MSNBC is that he is a never Trump conservative guy. He made a whole big thing about leaving the Republican Party in 2017. And what I love is that we have this whole class of op-ed writers. Joey Scarborough and Megan McArdle, they're not going to war zones, putting on flak jackets and, you know, reporting. They just give takes. They are take smiths. They craft takes in the take forge. And it doesn't matter how bad they are. Yeah, reading through all these, we really got the sense that their job is pure spectacle. They, they mm -hmm. do war analysis the way that Stephen A. Smith or what's his partner's name? Skip Bayless. Skip, Skip Bayless. <laughs> Skip Bayless. Skip. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get on a little bit of a Trump pedestal here and just talk about how shitty journalists are. <laughs> <laughs> Because they're lying. They're, they're the lying media. Reading through all these 2003 takes, and I really got the sense that what they do is sports talk radio for geopolitics. Because Stephen A. Smith, he'll get out there every year and make the worst takes in the world. Yeah. <laughs> he'll say that in 2012, he'll be like, Tom Brady is washed up. He's not going anywhere, Skip. Skip! Tom Brady's washed up. He's over. Yeah. <laughs> and yet, he only gets more and more prominent media positions, which is what's happening to Megan McCarthy. And, and Joe Scarborough. Stephen A. Smith also had the fire take that Ray Rice was in the wrong for beating up that woman, but women also need to look into <laughs> not being annoying. That's a thing that he said. The way that they talk about this war, it's so stupid because instead of about like a Patriots game, it's about a million people dying. And they're out there saying things like, you know, this is this is going to be a bounce back war for America. You know, we're not going <laughs> to lose two straight on the road. That's not who we yeah. are. <laughs> yeah. You know, Saddam, he seems tough, but look at his strength of schedule, okay? Kuwait, <laughs> Iran, it's not a tough schedule he's got. 
He's a pretender. You know, it's going to come down to who wants it more. And George Bush is going to give us a great halftime speech. Look, we were with Schwarzkopf in the preseason and his performance was strong. We really believe in these guys. We think we have a strong offensive line. The coaching staff's getting a lot of flack. Patriot Act, Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib. But you know what I say? Defense wins championships. <laughs> you know what the problem was with the Iraq War? England's very bad on the road. Very good at home. Very tough to beat at home, but does not travel well. And the Taliban, they have a chip on their shoulder. Yeah, I I think they're a team to watch, okay? They're going to hang around. It was just a 20-year rebuilding. (laughs) (laughs) The U.S., they made some great off-season signings. They went out and paid big money for some key pieces, and they're really not working for them. They went out and they signed Pat Tillman, but I'm I'm hearing he's being moved to the PUP list. Yeah, physically unable to perform. Oh, man, talking about manufacturing consent. Don't look into that guy's email, Chomsky. We want to do a Pat Tillman episode, so save this. Book rec for any any literate listeners. uh, Check out Where Men Win Glory by by John Krakauer. Now, before we get into the op-eds, I want to read a very, very small quote from the New York Times editorial board that came out May 26, 2004. The TLDR of how this happened is that the Bush administration wanted to go to war and the media went along with it. That's the TLDR. They overstated the evidence, overstated the case. The most generous reading, you could say, is that they were just grotesquely incompetent. But I think you need to be hilariously naive to believe that. The editorial board of the New York Times publishes this in 2004. Over the last year, this newspaper has shone the bright light of hindsight on decisions that led the United States into Iraq. We have examined the failings of American and allied intelligence, especially on the issue of Iraq's weapons and possible Iraqi connections to international terrorists. We have studied the allegations of official gullibility and hype. It is past time we turn the same light to ourselves. In doing so, reviewing the hundreds of articles written during the prelude to war and the early stages of the occupation, we found an enormous amount of journalism that we are proud of. In most cases, what we reported was an accurate reflection of the state of our knowledge at the time. Much of it painstakingly extracted from intelligence agencies that were themselves dependent on sketchy information. And where those articles included incomplete information or pointed in a wrong direction, they were later overtaken by more and stronger information. That is how news coverage normally unfolds. This is the most I fucked one goat energy I've ever heard. If you know the punchline to that joke about the Scottish guy. You fuck one goat, they never let you forget it. This is their official apology. And the first two paragraphs are like, you know, we also did a whole lot of good journalism, but no one remembers the good journalism we did in the lead up to Iraq. It's kind of wild to just hear that 20 years on from when the manufacturing consent was really jetting up in 2002 because it is the paper record. So, yep. You know what the thing is? So if you're listening to this and you supported the war in Iraq in 2003. Stop listening. We don't want you. You're an idiot. <laughs> but also, you weren't being done any favors by the journalist class. The thing that I keep coming back to while reading all of these is I expect Dick Cheney and George Bush to fuck us over because they're the head of multinational oil and defense corporations. I understand that it's in their best interest to create a war that multiplies the military budget by 10 times because Dick Cheney is the head of Halliburton. Yeah, oil field services and logistics. But I do expect better for from Joe Scarborough and Megan McArdle because I don't understand what they have to gain from this. $13 million a year. <laughs> <laughs> 
But 71% of media sources in the United States in 2003 were pro-war. And not just places like Fox News, but, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN. They were all trying to convince you that Saddam Hussein was personally responsible for 9-11 and that he was hiding WMDs. And Joe Scarborough, we're talking about a guy who was in the house with Dennis Haster and Newt Gingrich. Fundamentally, mm-hmm. he was kind of like, oh, I'm not as crazy as these guys. And we talked about why I got, got out of politics and bit but yeah i think yes. joe scarborough is a pretty sus character should we start with him we can start with them sure joe scarborough is currently on nbc as we've said he is a never trump conservative he's the good conservative he's what i like to call the glasses conservative not some hooting yahoo with a maga cat this guy went to school and reads so let's look back at his past in the segment i like to call the ballad of joseph scarborough scarborough joe was elected to congress in 1994 in the huge republican wave under newt gingrich republican revolution he wins four elections 94 96 98 2000 retires in 2001 he was the first republican to represent his florida panhandle district since the 1950s under eisenhower that was the last time a republican did it before that one republican in the 1950s it was a democrat all the way back to fucking reconstruction this is a district that is currently represented by none other than accused sex trafficker matt gates florida panhandle just putting up winner after winner Joey Scarb's Southern cred, when he was in college, I think, before he was a congressman, he released an album that was called Calling on Robert E. Lee. Here are some of the policies Joey Scarb supported while in Congress. Again, bearing in mind, he's the good Never Trump Republican. Privatize, localize, consolidate, or eliminate the following federal departments, commerce, education, energy, housing, and urban development. This is a guy who just wants to kill public housing. He introduced a law to have America pull out of the United Nations. I feel like we all forget when the United Nations was a big conservative bugbear. Dude, yeah. The angry, angry grandpa who was like ranting about the UN. Oh man, that's that's a throwback. That's some cottage cork uh, conspiracy system. I love the idea that as if America doesn't gain so much more from the UN that it gets out, like the UN slaps a veneer of legitimacy on like, oh, I don't know, blowing up Libya. <laughs> That was an American-led policy that was an official United Nations Security Council resolution. Like, why why would America ever pull out of this organization? Yes, he voted against increasing the federal minimum wage to the princely sum of $5.15 an hour. He voted to cut Medicaid by $270 billion. He's a pretty boilerplate 90s-style conservative guy. He is Ivanka Trump. This is who libs want to start every morning with, is this (laughs) guy. I want to have my my morning coffee and listen to a guy talk about why the minimum wage is too high. And the the United Nations is a globalist (laughs) cabal. It's like Diet Alex Jones. (laughs) (laughs) Alex Jones has swag. Joey Scarb has no fucking swag. He leaves Congress in 2001, and this is where it gets a little juicy. An aide is found dead in Joey Scarb's Florida office. Officially, the coroner rules this an accident. This poor 28-year-old woman passed out due to some kind of heart arrhythmia, and she hit her head on like the edge of a table on her way down, dying. Michael Moore, class act that he is, registered the web domain Joe Scarborough killed his intern.com. <laughs> now, what I will say about this on unrelated notice, Joe Scarborough is like a third wife guy and there mm. are some credible alleged allegations of him dicking around with interns and office assistants over the many years. And if you just mm. look at his haircut and energy, right? He does seem like <laughs> when Harry Crane and Mad Men has an affair. 
that's kind of the energy I'd get from the way he probably fucks. He cries about it after? Yeah, I think he's probably a crier, you know? So I don't know. I'm not going to say Joe Scarborough killed this woman, but the idea that there was some sort of foul play and or they're involved romantically in some way doesn't seem like the most wild allegation to make. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah, allegedly. Uh, all parody. I strongly recommend, maybe we'll make it the, the episode art. Look at his photo, his journalist cover photo from the 90s, and he's he's very lumpy. He's a very, like, <laughs> like mashed potatoes energy guy. Compared to now, he's, you know, now that he's on TV, he's much more chiseled. But a quick flash forward out of the Y2K era, Donald Trump tweets about Joe Scarborough when they got into a beef, a feud. Donald Trump tweets, then you have Psycho Joe, quote, whatever happened to your girlfriend, quote, Scarborough, another of the low IQ individuals. <laughs> Later that same year, Trump tweets, when will they open a cold case on the Psycho Joe Scarborough matter in Florida? Did he get away with murder? Some people think so. Why did he leave Congress so quietly and quickly? Isn't it obvious? What's happening now? A total nut job. <laughs> sometimes you do, in fact, got to hand it to him. He sometimes had the best words. They were mostly uh, <laughs> at other ghoulish people that were, in fact, hilarious. <laughs> Man, I'm sorry, but Donald Trump remains the god of nicknames. Psycho Joe Scarborough. There's an internal rhyme. I stand this like it was poetry. It's long, short, short, long, short, short. It's two dactyls. This man <laughs> is a poet. <laughs> He could never come up with a good nickname for Bernie. That's how you know Bernie probably mm. would have won. <laughs> Anyways, back to Joey Jojo Jr. Scarborough. <laughs> he wanted to be in the media so fucking bad that when he retires in 2001, he founds a Florida paper in Pensacola that still kind of exists. It got folded to something else, not important, but he clearly always had his eye on the prize of being in the media. And he gets his big break thanks to the war on terror and the war in Iraq. Because MSNBC had a show with an anchor named Phil Donahue, who was one of the few anti-war, anti-Bush voices on this network. And he got his shit canceled and fired. Thanks to a Freedom of Information Act, leaked memos, whatever the hell, we know that MSNBC internally said he would, quote, be a difficult face in the time of war. In a time of war, they said, don't rock the boat. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? <laughs> He's not a wartime consigliere. <laughs> I love that they have to make an effort to bring on a right-wing voice on the fucking MSNBC or whatever. And yet, if someone is anti-war, it's just like, oh, no, 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 get him off. Get him off the network. Yeah, <laughs> we want to do the news, but we don't want anyone to be mad at us. <laughs> So they replace Phil, Do poor Phil Donahue with a show called Scarborough Country. That is literally an Ontario suburb, right? Like, is that yeah. just a bunch of old Pakistani people selling me kebabs? It's, it's where the weekend's from. So whatever happened to Phil Donahue, do you know? Does he pay $13 million a year now for being I right? <laughs> Yeah, there aren't enough people dabbing about the Iraq war. There's a real lack of dabs, for sure. I think we've got to talk about John here as a casualty in this, right? He's the guy who was just kind of pushed out. He also was an early adopter of discussing child molestation in the Catholic Church in 1988. So wow. shout out to a real one, Phil Donahue. Yeah, I, I got that internal memo from an article that cited his firing as the day media died. And it was like, yeah, we're just spectacle and entertainment now. Get your outrage hits. But finally, we get to our little reading series. Now, it's tough because Joey Scarbs doesn't write a ton and he's a terrible writer. A lot of this early stuff is hard to find on YouTube. The streaming didn't exist yet. And I think also we might be trying to scrub the shit from the internet. But here are some, some quotes. When he has his Scarborough country show, which eventually morphs into Morning Joe, he starts dropping some fire takes on Iraq. He 
starts saying things like, this is from March 5th, 2003. Congressman Kingston, give me a quick response. How could there be anyone left on the planet today that doesn't believe Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction? The motherfucker bought some yellow cake, okay, in Africa. He went to Africa and he bought yellow cake. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure, bitch. I got a CIA right here, he'll tell you. And keep all of these quotes in mind, because I'm going to read you some recent Scarborough quotes in a little bit. But this is this is the real piece de resistance in terms of this is the most aggressively I've ever heard someone be wrong since Amy Winehouse recorded the song Rehab, but how she <laughs> didn't need to go to rehab. <laughs> and I'll give you the date. This is from April 10th, 2003. So we're one month into the war. He writes, I'm waiting to hear the words, I was wrong from some of the world's most elite journalists, politicians, and Hollywood types. I just wonder, who's going to be the first elitist to show the character to say hey America guess what I was wrong maybe the White House will get an apology first from the New York Times is Maureen Dowd now Ms. Morality mocked the morality of this war he continues do, do you all remember Scott Ritter you know the former chief of UN's weapons inspector who played chief stooge for Saddam Hussein well Mr. Ritter actually told the French radio network that quote the United States is going to leave Baghdad with its tail between its legs defeated sorry Scott I think you've been chasing the wrong tail again projection 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 <laughs> Maybe disgraced commentators and politicians alike, like Tom Daschle, Jimmy Carter, Dennis Kucinich, and all those others will step forward tonight and show the content of their character by simply admitting what we know already, that their wartime predictions were arrogant, they were misguided, and they were dead wrong. Maybe, just maybe, these self-anointed critics will learn from their mistakes. But I doubt it. After all, we don't call them elitists for nothing. Be in Berlin in two weeks, boys. 1914, let's fucking go. Back home before the leaves fall. Just doing a touchdown dance at the 40-yard line during a live play. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just demanding that they apologize for an opinion that has not played out yet. Disparaging Jimmy Carter, the elderly (laughs) Habitat for Humanity poem-building guy. It's really funny when people get upset with Jimmy Carter. (laughs) (laughs) He put the damn solar panels on the White House. Yeah, this is a big to-do when Trump had his kids running his real estate shit or whatever. Congress made Jimmy Carter get rid of his peanut farm when he became president. Like, what if he, what if he fucked up American foreign policy to favor the peanut? <laughs> <laughs> we gotta knock out some West African countries for their peanut production. <laughs> Would you be surprised to know, Joe Scarborough, he did not apologize, even though he had the audacity to demand it of other people. Also, note how back then, it, it was the right wing, the, the hatred of elitists, but and now he's a never Trump guy. Well, so I mean, like, it, yeah. but that is a really interesting thread to pull on, right? I think there's a rant in Generation Kill about this, where it was like, if you were anti-Iraq war, you were someone who like lived in Manhattan or certain parts of LA or Chicago, and that's the only way you could be it. And I think it became a thing where for a lot of suburban people, it was gauche to talk about being anti-Iraq war, because I think like a lot of the boomers who were really kind of involved in this of age with kids, kind of a lot of the voters who were swing voters nationally. And it was kind of like there was this immense social pressure. Yeah, that, that Family Guy clip we played is, is making fun of that. It wasn't enough for these people to say that like, invading Iraq is, is a good idea. They also had to say that if you're against invading Iraq, then, you know, you're, you're a, a lo- fucking pussy. Yeah, yeah you're, a lo- <laughs> you're a loser. Yeah. And that comes through in a lot of the pro-war stuff that we read. 
I got a couple more Joey's Guard bits. In 2006, one of the deadliest years in the Iraq occupation, as it's spiraling into civil war, our boy Joey Scarves writes a piece called Iraq is not in the Civil War. <laughs> we can just see his slow descent. I, I won't read all of this because it's pretty boring, but it opens last week. The usual media suspects declared that civil war had broken out in the streets of Baghdad. A new <laughs> Washington Post poll, comma, Americans were listening. 80% now believe Iraq is heading to civil war. New paragraph. Don't believe everything you see on TV. I don't want to accuse any of my colleagues of stupidity. The suggestion that Iraq is currently engaged in the civil war is a conclusion that could be drawn by one who is either too stupid to be on TV or just liberal enough to have his own news show. It's a fun little bit too, because literally if you talk to anyone in intelligence, then like that was when the Anbar awakening was happening, which was literally when a major Shia shrine in Anbar province was blown up. Because before then the Shia community hadn't really been participating as much. It'd be most like Sunni, Ba'athist, and Islamist violence, but it has been dabbling here and there at the edges. But that's when the Shia community is like, all right, Sadras, fuck me up. That was when you first start seeing Skiri and these really out there Shia political and military movements taking form. Those uh, militias betray us so much love to talk about in his latter years. Uh, so I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of absurd there, Joey. Yeah. <laughs> he also does the high school valedictorian thing of Webster's defines a civil war act. <laughs> he says, the term civil war suggests a country is being ripped apart by competing internal factions. And I'll be damned if I have to explain this again for all the idiots who talk on TV every night without knowing the facts. But here I go again. And then he just like reads a Wikipedia article. 60% of Iraq is made up of Shiites. 20% of the country is made up of Kurds. So is he just describing the preconditions for like an ethnic civil war? Massive geographical division and like bad blood for a hundred years of colonialism and Cold War era rules. So yeah, I think this will be fine if, if they haven't learned anything. It's so bad. He talks about how the New York Times want the Sunnis to be more involved. The Sunnis are the bad guys. They were the ones who were ruling Iraq. And then the, America does the surge, which is mostly just arming the Sunnis who would later go on to be ISIS. Look up the sons of Iraq, dear listener. Dude, ISIS literally had in their internal hierarchy, the prison jumpsuit color coding from Abu Ghraib and a number of other American processing centers was a badge of honor. People in early diaspora rocking. So like, shout out to a guy who is, is again, you, you, got, you have to respect neoconservative punditry for being not only uncomfortable from a policy standpoint, but from a kayfabe standpoint. Mm. <laughs> yes. There was another short blog that I don't want to read where he does say that, that the GOP is fucking up and they're probably going to be punished in the 2006 midterms. But he thinks it has nothing to do with Iraq. It has everything to do with the Dubai Ports World controversy. Damn, I was so pissed about the Dubai Ports World controversy in 2006. <laughs> yeah. And I guess because it involved Bush threatening to veto something in that Congress wanted about where the bases were going to go in Dubai and the ports. But it's like... That really ticked me off. When- <laughs> 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 when he put the bases there. You need to be such a foreign policy psycho. Like you need you need to work in Persian Gulf shipping for this to be a voting issue for you. What the fuck? <laughs> I got a couple more Joey Scar pieces that bring us close to the present. In 2011, he writes a piece, The Fog of War Continues Over Iraq. Again, it's pretty boring. He talks about all the things he won't talk about with people. Like he won't talk about religion with 
Christopher Hitchens. He won't talk about Monica Lewinsky. He was in Congress. He won't talk about Building 7 during 9-11. And he won't talk about the Iraq War. He went from being a cheerleader to being like, you know, I can't talk about this with people. Again, this is a guy who said he demanded an apology from the elitists who were anti-war. And now it's like, yeah, you know, I don't want, I don't want to talk. So he says, like 75% of Americans and most of Congress, I supported the war with Iraq. With Iraq, as if that preposition, as if it's two equal things. The war with, the, the war on Iraq. Much of that support was the result of selected intelligence from the Bush administration. The White House suffered a systemic breakdown with the vice president and secretary of defense more focused on justifying the war than showing the type of caution our troops deserve before being sent to fight in a foreign land. George W. Bush was also guilty of gross negligence. Wait, what now? In part by failing to reach out to the two greatest living experts on warfare in the Persian Gulf. <laughs> Eight years later, it is still hard to believe that the commander-in-chief refused to seek the advice of his father <laughs> or, or his secretary of state, who had run a searingly efficient military campaign a little more than a decade earlier in the same region against the same dictator. Searingly efficient is a really nice rebrand for what was called at the time the highway of death. <laughs> I mean, thermite is searingly efficient if you <laughs> Like that is, in terms of Raytheon's metrics, they do have a point. I love that he tries to cloak himself in the 75% number. He's like, listen, I was wrong, but you know what? Who else was 75% of people? Partly because of my articles. Yeah, right? (laughs) Partly because of what I was doing. I goosed that number up, right? But as Bush told Bob Woodward, there was no reason to ask Colin Powell's advice because he knew the general was opposed to the invasion. (laughs) Bush, Bush 43 told Woodward that there was no need to seek out Bush 41's wisdom since he had his quote, Heavenly Father itself. Joey's take here. The other kind of deep cut I want to make here, talking about Colin Powell, there's a lot of words spilled on Colin Powell and tokenism, but basically at the altar of Colin Powell and his relationship to Congress in Iraq, and that, you know, his famous, like, the, the day he violated his own code and line, it also sacrificed General uh, Shinoseki, who is a Hawaiian uh, Nisei descendant. So the Nisei are people from Hawaii who are Japanese, basically sent to fight in Europe. So there wasn't an uprising there. They couldn't turn them all. Hawaii was too Japanese at the time. They basically had this Nisei descendant who correctly answered Congress that it would take upwards of 450,000 people to hold Iraq correctly, at least. And you probably wouldn't want to dissolve the army, is what he'd said in military minutes. He was diametrically opposed to the maneuver warfareist of General James Mattis, a regeneration kill mm. for more on him. But yeah, basically Colin Powell had to kind of sacrifice this other guy who was another high-ranking non-white general in the U.S. Army in the process of manufacturing this consent. And again, Joe Scarborough was one of the people who ran after Shinoseki. There's op-eds and stuff, too. So it's just a, kind of outstanding. You can ruin people's career, be categorically wrong. It's like the QAnon people who stop being QAnon people who are like Q boosters, but something doesn't happen, so they stop being Q boosters. They're like, look, look, it's the friends we made along the way, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the rest of this article is just a catalog of all of the Democrats who supported the Iraq war. So he's like, how can you point finger? Let he who's without fingers point the first stone, you know, ignoring his, <laughs> his active agent role in making this so. So he brings up Hillary Clinton. He brings up the liberal media. Here's just an absolutely egregious couple paragraphs. This is 2011, remember. He says, leading up to the president's mission accomplished speech, the Los Angeles Times ran a front page story with a headline that read, Iraq is all but one. Now what? 
what? Three days before Bush put on his flight suit, NPR's Morning Edition declared that the war in Iraq is essentially over and domestic issues are regaining attention. PBS's Gwen Ifill praised the president's performance as one-third superhero, one-third movie star, and one-third political icon. The president was picture perfect. Part Spider-Man, part Time Cruise, and part Ronald Reagan. The president seized the moment on an aircraft carrier in the Pacific. And then <laughs> the real war began, right? <laughs> Scarbo. And his conclusion, the concluding paragraph was, the Iraq war framed a disastrous decade for U.S. foreign policy. President Obama should be praised for bringing it to a close. But as we move forward into even more uncertain times, Americans should always remember that the Iraq war was not the product of one man or one party, but of a political system that continues to betray the very citizens it is supposed to protect and serve. Say what now? Wouldn't that system include the people who manufacture consent? Just like notionally, I'm just asking. Because the mission accomplished thing, to say the mission accomplished looked cool in any way mm-hmm. and have that in writing like i don't know how you retire from public life you know yeah like- <laughs> yeah and we should move on but in this 2011 article he says this line george w bush's decision to remain isolated and willfully ignorant of these great leaders insight you know colin powell and his dad led to a disastrous war that could have been avoided right mr mr fucking one of the elitists going to apologize mr fucking he has the wmds and they're so dangerous not even 10 years later, I think in 2006, saying it's not in a civil war, you know, just stay the course. Now, all of a sudden, it's like it could have been avoided, totally unnecessary. Yeah, but, you know, 75% of Congress. Support, I mean, so. it's a better take than from, though, because Scarborough's take is it is what it is. That's basically mm-hmm. what he's doing, right? Whereas from is like, no, no, no it's the Iraqis that failed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Finally, this is my last two quotes. In 2014, when a Democrat's in the White House, this is a great Republican take that they're still busting out, which is, everything was fine with the war until a Democrat came in and ended it. They do this with Joe Biden with Afghanistan, right? We just needed to keep five, <laughs> 10,000 guys there tops. And it would have been fine. So this 2014 article says, today, many Iraqis tell Philkins that a small group of Americans working in non-combat roles would have provided a crucial stabilizing factor that is now missing from Iraq. Philkins' timely analysis suggests that the Obama administration has taken a bad situation inherited by Bush and made it worse. But there's no escaping the fact that the original sin of going into Iraq in the first place and then gutting the government of any experienced hands have led us to this place. Iraq is on fire, Iran is getting involved, and the White House just released a statement saying all options are on the table. Hold on, it looks like things are about to get worse. Did he just do a buckle up or going for a ride? Yep. fucking rules. This is right before they, they went back in to fight ISIS. And finally, my last, last quote, Scarbo coming full circle. He's now a never-Trump Republican. He's left the Republican Party. It's 2017, before the inauguration of Donald Trump. And he says, this is madness, by the way. I keep hearing John Bolton's name. This guy still believes, knowing everything that we know, that we should have invaded Iraq, Scarborough said on Morning Joe on Monday. Now he's like, anyone who thought Iraq was a good idea shouldn't work for the White House. Maybe they shouldn't work at all. Yeah, I can't believe that this is the guy who's the second highest paid person on the Lib Network. But at least SNL loves to skewer Joe Scarborough, right? They love to parody. They must have some really cutting things to say about Joe Scarborough, you know, being that they're the truth tellers of democracy. I'm Joe, that's Mika. I come because I have to. (laughs) You come because I tell you to. Oh my God, can we not be this self-aggrandizing this early in the morning? You're just- What do you want to do for lunch? I don't know. Yeah, I know what you want. You're a steak Florentine gal. Yeah. Are you going to feed me my meat? 
Because you're a dirty dog? You know I am. <laughs> Rough. <laughs> Rough indeed. Did they make fun of him for being a warmonger who bullied us into killing one million Iraqis or allegedly killing his intern? No, no. They made fun of him for being horny for his wife. Damn, you really got his ass, SNL. Go off. See, what's so frustrating about Joey Scarves is that I think the role that he's playing is this weird, imagined conservative that the libs love. So Aaron Sorkin does this a lot, where oh, yeah. the conservative isn't the QAnon-supporting, red-pilled, Pepe-posting motherfucker. It's not the shouting yahoos. It's not the fucking evangelical right. To the Democrats, the ideal Republican is some glasses-wearing, college-going, Chamber of Commerce motherfucker who probably likes low taxes, pro-business. If you look at someone like Jeff Newsroom on Aaron Sorkin, he, he doesn't believe global warming is caused by gays. So, you know, the ideal good conservative is kind of environmentalist, you know, not crazy like that. Maybe they even support some common sense gun control. And it's a fucking fantasy, man. Let's get into that. Why do libs love an idealized version of their opponent? Because I, I feel like right wing people don't do that. They don't have the ideal lib that they're making TV shows about. And well, they do. They're just TV shows are about wanting to massacre them and how they're saying files. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they do with JFK, I guess, a little bit. I've heard, I, I, I see some of that JFK worship on, on the right. And the one they, that they, the one that they murdered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, like, I think to the lib psyche and like someone like a Joe Scarborough, what it really is, is it's, it's your Sorkin did then, right? It's like, they want someone they can walk and talk with, whether it's around some Ivy League campus or like building in Manhattan or LA or DC somewhere. They just want to walk and talk partner. He does look like, he has a central casting energy, especially since he's moved from like lumpen congressman to like kind of like a more svelte new character with the adrenochrome you know and, <laughs> like, he's definitely got an energy that i think libs like to fantasize about they want their worthy adversary who they just really want to get a coffee with because libs like I think they have daddy issues honestly they yeah. just want their dad to be on their news program who reminds them that actually public housing is bad and it's funny the closest they should have to someone they respect is bill clinton and in one of these shitty fucking joey scarborough pieces he said that the, the bill clinton white house had moderately more respect for Congress than George W., whom he supported. So this is as close as they get to idealizing the other side, but modern conservatives now think that Bill Clinton is a fucking child rapist, right? He's not their, he's not their worthy adversary. He did he's take a few flights that we might want to ask to pull up. <laughs> Just saying. Like Chris Tucker leaving Hollywood at the same time being on those flight manifests? I got a few follow-up questions, homie. Oh, yeah. No, no, I'm not. I'm not going on the record as to what I think Bill Clinton's sexual proclivities are. We just talked about Joey Scarborough, Psycho Joe. <laughs> and now we're going to get into Megan McArdle, who is sort of a famous columnist in the, the Chapo universe that people might be familiar with. Never remind someone of a better show, Jordano. <laughs> so just to give you like a, a little scoop uh, on Mer Megan McArdle, if you're not familiar with her, she is a columnist. She's like a famous 2000 style libertarian who wrote a blog under the pseudonym Jane Galt, which is a, a character from Ayn Rand. Of the Fountainhead. From the Fountainhead. And she's from New York City. She lived with her parents until she was 30 or something and just posted endlessly until she got a job working for The Economist. And she's sort of legendary for her takes because she's so prolific, but in a way that isn't even impressive because she worked for The Atlantic for five years. And in those five years, I counted the number of articles that she wrote and it's in the thousands. Mm -hmm. Always be posting. <laughs> 
At first I was like, wow, she wrote 6,000 political articles in five years. That's incredible. And then it occurred to me that in order to post that much, how much thought are you really putting into these? She's like diarying on the internet. I just want to put this classic joke about Ayn Rand on the recording. There are two novels that can change a bookish 14-year-old's life, Lord of the Rings and Atlas Shrugged. One is a childish fantasy that often engenders a lifelong obsession with its unbelievable heroes, leading to an emotionally stunted, socially crippled adulthood, unable to deal with the real world. The other, of course, involves orcs. <laughs> Got their ass! Coded in narco-primitive text, J.R.R. <laughs> Tolkien, you know, like, de-industrialized Britain. Liz Truss, you're working on it. We see you there. <laughs> yeah, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien is actually the best evidence for not going to therapy. The guy claimed he hated metaphors. He's like, no, no, Mordor's not a metaphor for the Western <laughs> Front. It's just, a, it's just a, a mythological story about orcs. And it's like, well, or, you know, it's it's like a desiccated, burnt-out landscape where nothing can grow and war has happened. So, yeah, you know, so I'm, I'm just glad he worked through his trauma by writing these novels instead of talking about his childhood with the therapist. I think the mm -hmm. world is a better place because J.R.R. Tolkien didn't go to therapy. That's a spicy Megan McGriddle-style take. But... <laughs> I mean, Megan McArdle is, is famous for her libertarian views. She loves to claim that. I mean, she wrote a book called The Upside of Down, and her whole thing is, oh, the thing that you actually think is bad is good because of the, the after effects. And so we're going to read a couple articles from her in 2003 in the lead up to the Iraq war, where much like Joe Scarborough, she's basically just bullying people into going to war. This is the first article that, that we're going to read. We're doing a little reading series on this podcast. This is the first ever. And it's an article that Megan wrote in support of the war. And it's <laughs> in just the sickest terms imaginable. It's titled, How Much Is the War Going to Cost? This is Megan McArdle theorizing about how much the war is going to cost. Specifically, she's making fun of someone who is estimating that the war is going to be very expensive. So, okay, this is quoting Megan. I've seen a number of claims like this one from Eric Alterman. The first 75 billion is just a down payment. Expect to pay hundreds of billions in the short term, trillions in the long run. Expect it to come out of your schools, your police forces, your highways, your future and your children's future. This is Megan, you know, quoting someone. And then this is her clap back. Trillions? US GDP is roughly 10 trillion. Alterman is saying that over the long run, this war is going to cost us at least 20% of GDP. That's nuts. It's not the first time I've seen those sorts of numbers around. Reality check. The entire US military budget is in the range of $350 billion. Saying this war will cost trillions in any short term for us to care about is saying that this war is going to cost nearly as much as the entire military budget year in, year out for decades. For reference, the next six months are estimated to cost $60 billion in military spending. Even with a fudge factor of 50% that's 90 billion over the next six months, 180 billion a year. At that rate, assuming you do absolutely no discounting at all, it would take us over 10 years to get to 2 trillion, thus meeting the trillions criteria, which is madness. Yeah, just to summarize what we're doing here, this is Megan McArdle in the lead up to the Iraq war saying that the idea that the war could cost $2 trillion is, is laughable. Do you want to know how much the war ended up costing in Iraq? Exactly $2 trillion. So she's saying that this person's idea is laughable, it's a fantasy, and they were like Nostradamus, just bullseyeing the number 15 years before the war was over. And by the way, that $2 trillion is what's generally agreed upon to be like the lower estimate of how much the war costs. So I just want to harp on this number for a couple of reasons, because I think this is why y'all brought me here today. I did some digging on this. I remember some friends getting me the book, The uh, Three trillion dollar war by joseph stiglitz in 2008 and 
This is from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in 2013. Uh, the staggering financial cost of the Iraq war can continue to rise even a decade later. Initially justified as a war that would cost about 50 to 60 billion, today experts estimate that the true financial cost is between four and six trillion. In order to understand the war's rising price tag, Linda J. Blimes, author of the 2008 book, The Three Trillion Dollar War, who co-authored it with Joseph Stiglitz, explained how her research team arrived at these numbers. And as it's published in her book, she discovered that at least two trillion to more than three trillion figure would be taking into account rising disability benefits for veterans and claims by returning veterans as well as equipment attrition. So basically that's them saying that the amortization of the U.S. military equipment and kind of life cycle cost of this shit was just not accounted to anyone's numbers. As again, I'm sure Megan McCarver could tell you about anyone doing the civil service budget. This is just so, so funny because this is from eight years ago now, nine years ago now. And literally we're already talking about four to six trillion. I've seen 10 trillion batted around uh, Afghanistan and Iraq combined. And also keep in mind the Pentagon has never been fully audited. So- mm. Yeah, these are all wonderful data points. Someone should maybe get on that. <laughs> I know the budget that we know about that they passed is 750 something billion dollars a year. And I know that some conservative voices like Tucker Carlson, I believe, would point out to you that even though Joe Biden raised it to, I believe, almost 800 billion dollars a year, factoring in inflation, Joe Biden actually cut the military budget, making us unsafe. Again. You got to respect Megan McArdle for when you're quoting someone who literally predicts the thing that is correct and then shading them in the next line. The shamelessness, you know, you got to recognize it. Before TikTok, mm-hmm. there was Meg. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With how aggressively wrong she was. And just a reminder, this woman now works for the Washington Post. Was she punished for being so wrong? No. In fact, she was given one of the cushiest jobs in media mm-hmm. for a liberal organization. Okay, this is quoting Megan again. Where do they get these numbers? With gems like this from James Galbraith, the son of the amiably paranoiac pop economist John Kenneth Galbraith. I love that she calls John Kenneth Galbraith a pop economist. And it's like, what the fuck do you do, Megan? Like, (laughs) you have a BA in English literature and you feel justified enough in commenting on this. But John Kenneth Galbraith, who's written like 50 books on economics, isn't qualified to talk about it. Yet somehow you are quoting James Galbraith, the son of the pop economist John Kenneth Galbraith. Recently, as we've debated the war now underway in Iraq, seven Nobel laureates joined with 150 other U.S. economists, including myself, to call for careful consideration of the cost of the war in Iraq. When economists talk about costs, what do we mean? First, we mean budget costs for gasoline, equipment, and explosives that begin about $100 billion. This figure is based on the assumption that the war goes well. The assumption is wrong. The numbers will go up fast. The history of warfare from Europe in 1914 to Vietnam in the 1960s is littered with gross underestimates of budget costs. In Iraq, though, the civilian population is already stressed. Even modest material damage to the water, to the electrical grids, and to the health system could all bring on a humanitarian disaster. There are risk of sabotage, not least to the oil fields, and there will be some damage inevitably to the archaeological heritage of Iraq, and especially Baghdad. The human costs are beyond understanding. No matter the number of casualties, every dead soldier on either side is a dead civilian. It is a human being who could have lived a productive and perhaps happy life. Every injured person will carry a burden of pain. We need not demean the grief ahead by trying to give it a money value. The reconstruction costs are imponderable. One estimate for the cost of rebuilding Iraq runs $2 trillion. So this is Megan's clapback. She's quoting him in that section there. She says, he conflates all sorts of costs into one big and more 
amorphous bundle. He only looks at costs on one side, for example, discussing the costs of lives in the war without discussing the costs of lives in Saddam's regime and the sanctions that are likely alternative to war. Does it cost America money? <laughs> <laughs> if we kill 300 Iraqi civilians and 300 American troops ousting Saddam and Saddam's secret police are murdering a thousand people a year and 5,000 people are a year of dying from humanitarian crisis brought on by sanctions, it is not a net cost in human lives. Who's doing the sanctions? <laughs> yeah. We're going to save the starving children. And why are they starving? Who's starving them? <laughs> You're starving them. The other thing she's doing here is she's complaining about an economist adding up costs. Isn't that what fucking economists do? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I love also the idea that when planning for the cost of the war, they're like, well, this is the cost if everything goes well. That's what you want. That's how I like to plan my life. If everything goes perfect for the next year, then we'll be fine. But think about Megan McArdle's own experience. She's been on a roll for 25 years. I mean, like, literally, yeah. she was living with her parents in a cushy Manhattan apartment, got to pretend to be an erudite American in London, always be sauce of Americans in London, and then fails up to the Atlantic and WAPO. It's like, how couldn't Schwarzenegger think he could bang his maid? She's been on a roll for 30 years, boys. <laughs> That's a classic Megan McArdle Upper West Side shuffle to be like, oh, well, let's say, you know, the people who are dying from Saddam's secret police is a thousand people a year. And you have to count that against the people who are dying from war, which uh, let's just say ballpark 300 people a year. <laughs> like just some very Lucille Bluth style estimations of the number of people who are going to die from war at 300, as if they would ever be comparable. Yeah, what pisses me off so much about the pro-war argument that's like Saddam is so wickedly evil. George H.W. Bush said he could have been the next Hitler uh, in the Middle East. Listen, I'm not going to be a fucking Saddam defender or apologist. Yeah, it was a bad dude. You know who didn't think he was a bad dude? America for like 20 years from 20-ish, uh, from like 1979-ish <laughs> to the early 90s. There's a photo of Donald Rumsfeld shaking his hand. He got the key to the city of Detroit. He was their boy for a long, long time until he wasn't. Yeah, you can talk about how wickedly evil he is, but you know, America did do a heck of a lot to enable him, so it rings very hollow. I mean, one step further, even before Saddam, the whole Ba'athist movement in Syria was mostly because the Ba'athists were anti-communists, right? Mm -hmm. The American meddling in the Middle East is always convenient. So if you want to talk about bad dictators, we're supporting a theocratic monarchy that only controls 7% of the global oil supply to do war crimes in Yemen mm -hmm. because it makes money. Yeah. You know what? You guys aren't thinking about enough about the butterfly effect of invading Iraq because Megan has some really good points that I want to bring up. Oh, yeah, hit me. When, when she says, likewise, he examines only the negative consequences the current uncertainty might have on the economy without mentioning, for example, that a successful war might boost the consumer confidence, dampened by fears of terrorism, or that lowered security risk in the Middle East might result in both lower oil prices and higher investment in highly oil-dependent industries. So you guys aren't considering, one, the boost in consumer confidence that comes from declaring war, and two, that we're going to have a more stable Middle East after we're done with why aren't people shopping more? Is it, is it because wages have been stagnant since the 70s? No, people aren't shopping enough because they're scared of terrorism. <laughs> they're scared if they go to the mall, they'll get 9-11. And historically, going to war, a very stabilizing thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> people, don't think, people aren't thinking about that, you know? Yeah, pe people haven't thought about it. You remember, America went into Vietnam, and look what happened to its neighbors, Laos and Cambodia. <laughs> they, they just <laughs> did splendidly. All right, so getting back to Megan 
McGriddle here. He offers unsourced references for large numbers. One estimate for the cost of rebuilding Iraq runs $2 trillion in order to give his false claims a patina of precision. <laughs> like... <laughs> She's criticizing this man for giving unsourced cost numbers when he's sourcing 150 economists and she's doing nothing. She's yeah. just shitting all, words out onto her stupid blog. All of her benefits are equally unsourced. Sorry, wait, where is the economic law that wars boosts consumer confidence or whatever? Or stability or <laughs> Say what you will about the economists. I do think it's a fake field that shouldn't exist, but they at least can point to things and count things. Things do have costs. If this is essentially an adding exercise, it's something I think we can trust the economists with. But her entire benefits are entirely nebulous and hypothetical and amorphous. Okay, getting back to Megan. You can't claim that our failure to institute national health care is an opportunity cost of the war when such a thing would cost far more than the money being spent on war and when it's something we probably wouldn't be doing anyway. Well, she is right about that second. <laughs> <laughs> But you want to talk about unsourced facts, forget about the fact that most economists, including a Koch-funded study, have said that Medicare for All would actually save $2 trillion over a 10-year period. Yeah, yeah, it would be more efficient. But yeah, never forget, dear listener, that when Barack Obama could have done single-payer healthcare, he is on the record saying that he can't do it because it would destroy 3 million jobs. And those jobs are those bureaucrats that stop you from seeing a doctor. Think of the Billings consultants. Think of the Billings consultants, man. <laughs> someone please think of the Billings consultants? <laughs> yeah. Every time someone's like, oh, you need to send me another photocopy of your insurance card. That's a job Obama saved so that you wouldn't have health care. I'll just finish up this article. That the cost of U.S. taxpayers will be over $2 trillion, even though most of the larger costs cited by Galbraith aren't going to be borne by Americans, either directly or indirectly, but by Iraqi oil. That's the oil that will be able to flow freely for the first time in 10 years because of this war and the revenue from which will flow you could stop the sanctions at any time <laughs> you could just stop them that's it am i suggesting that the iraqis should pay for occupation expenses nope we can afford it and there's something repellent about making impoverished iraqis pay for a war foisted on them by an evil dictator so good to clarify that after <laughs> shut the fuck up <laughs> sorry who's foisting the war now How's shut, stop? Shut, shut up shut up <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is Saddam foisting the war on them. Let's not forget that. Why'd you make me hit you? Why'd you make me hit you? Why'd you make me hit you? Back to Megan. The war will certainly cost more than the 60 billion and change that the president is asking for, but it is not going to run us several trillion dollars. Though even if it did, that would work out to less than 0.1% of GDP over the next 20 years. <laughs> I love that when you float a number like $60 billion to a libertarian for healthcare, it's something that can't be done. And yet, <laughs> if it's for a war, it's like, you know what? It's pocket change over the next 20 years. Also, I love how Megan McGriddle is far more cold and calculating and just robotic and non-human-like than the fucking economist. The passage of the economist you quoted, even he's like, oh yeah, there's all this cultural heritage in Iraq. You know, the earliest cities of Mesopotamia, such important data points for how humanity transferred from being fucking hunter-gatherers to civilized people. And it's all going to get fucking wrecked by this war. And it was. And it was. And that economist yeah. is also never mind the human cost, just not even part of Megan McArdle's fucking calculus at all. That's what links a lot of Megan's articles together is whenever she talks about support for the war, not only is it wrong, but it's in the most inhuman terms. It's always the reason why we should go to war is because it's a good deal. Yeah. <laughs> we 
can't leave this money on the table. The only reason why you wouldn't do it is because it's expensive, you know? Yeah. It's war. I got a discount going on. I, can, I got a guy selling me some Humvees at a 3% discount off a hot lot. We're going to do this quickly. Get some black water in there, you know, sub some of this out, reduce the net costs. It'll be great. Closing thoughts on, on costs in the military here. I think everyone should read Naomi Klein's shock doctrine because she talks about how the day before 9-11, Donald Rumsfeld made a speech at the Pentagon about how the greatest national security threat facing America was the Pentagon's bloated bureaucracy. So what Bush and them did is they massively increased the Pentagon's budget while slashing their internal fucking bureaucracy. So the Pentagon used to run its own mail. The Pentagon used to do its own food. The Pentagon used to run all of this stuff internally because it's the fucking military. It's not supposed to be based on efficiencies or profit. It's supposed to be based off of fucking security. So it turned into a giant money laundering thing where most of the military started being run by subcontractors and sub-subcontractors so that everyone could get their beak wet in war. You know, Dick Cheney specifically, he had a $19 million bonus, I believe, uh, when he left Halliburton in order to take the job and run for vice president. This is an oil field services and logistics company, right? And for those people who are listening who don't know what that passively means, it's moving people and shit to fuel things around, which obviously will immensely benefit from a war in an oil-producing country. So I'm not going to be conspiratorial in saying this was all for money, but there was certainly a map that existed of Iraq in the White House where people had designs on what the oil industry would look like after Iraq. And just Megan McCarthy was so casually being like, oh, it's a good get is, uh, you know. Yeah, I, I looked balance. into it. This this claim that we paid for the war via the oil that was freed up, false, basically. Turns out getting oil out of an active war zone, more difficult than people imagine. But what's important is that under Saddam Hussein, the Iraqi oil industry was nationalized among a whole host of other industries. And early on in the occupation, all that shit was privatized, much like happened in Russia in the early 90s. They sold that shit off for pennies to various and sundry international business. But we're getting far from Megan. This is the last line of this article, how much is the war going to cost, okay? Mm -hmm. But making up ridiculous numbers in order to support your predisposition isn't helpful. And when the war doesn't cost us $2 trillion, people are going to remember that the next time you talk about the cost of a program you don't like. Mm. Well, I guess, she, yeah, she was wrong on two fronts. One is with that the war cost more than $2 trillion, and also that people are going to remember it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have a couple more choice cuts from Megan. This is her posting after watching, played that clip before on the show of Michael Moore getting booed at the Academy Awards, but this is her post after that event. Michael Moore predictably won the Oscar for Bowling for Columbine. Utterly predictable. He made an anti-Bush, anti-war speech. Highly unpredictable, the boos were louder than the applause. It's clear that Michael Moore, for all his blather, thought that he was taking a most uncourageous stand, preaching to the choir. The people who booed, given where they live and work, that took guts. <laughs> I suspect we won't see any more brave anti-war stances tonight, now that it's become clear that actual courage is involved. I love so, it. I love it. Her, people her... aren't praised enough for the courage of being part of a mob. <laughs> She, her her stance there is that Michael Moore, he was pandering. Actually, you know who was courageous? The mob for, for booing him. I have another article that I want to read through, which is about why the war is going to be good for the economy. Because mm. Megan has a really big brain take on this. Okay. So essentially, she's, I'm not going to read the original article, but she's clapping back to an author who said that war is bad for the economy because you're essentially taking wealth and blowing it up. And you could use that to build a, a road or a bridge that saves people 
people time on their commute. He writes about how it's just a, a transfer, essentially, of wealth from taxpayers to the military industrial complex. Correct. And yes. Megan says, is this true? In principle, Will is broadly right. The shift to a wartime economy represents a transfer of resources from consumer production to extremely non-durable, fun-for-no-one goods like grenades and tanks, and extremely ugly clothing made of mottled green and uh, doppled taupe fabric. When I say and- fun for no one, I'm of course leaving out the 19-year-olds who get to blow up things. I am assuming that this net psychic wealth is pretty much completely counterbalanced in a cosmic sense by the extreme non-fun having of the people who own or occupy the things that are exploded. <laughs> Yikes. Not to mention the mental anguish of those 19-year-olds face at the prospect of eating MREs, forsaking indoor plumbing, wearing hot, uncomfortable clothing in the desert. I like the thought that the worst thing a crew can have is eating bad food and not like killing someone or tinnitus or getting injured or some shit. Or getting a fucking limb blown off. Yeah. No, it's wearing unfashionable clothes. That's the yeah. real cost of the war. I want to see the Megan McGriddle review of Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, which is about how the military dehumanizes you into a killing machine. And the emotional climax of the movie is when the main character needs to shoot a child soldier in the head. And as they walk back to base, he's so desensitized that he's singing the fucking the theme to the Mickey Mouse song. I think Megan McGriddle would watch that movie and be like, wow, he sure did self-actualize. He had a lot of fun in that war. <laughs> <laughs> he got to blow things up and shoot guns, which is what 19 year old boys like to do. So this is her continuing. However, economically, this transaction is fairly neutral. Economics, because it is not in the business of making moral judgments, regards the transfer of resources from, say, inventing web van to inventing a smart missile that targets people who have not separated their plastic recyclables from the rest of their garbage <laughs> as making little difference to the overall size of the economy. Will seems to be implying that Lockheed takes the money and lights up a big bonfire outside of their corporate headquarters. But this money stays in the economy. Lockheed must also employ computer programmers who buy farm goods and insurance. <laughs> I love that. What are public funds going to be used for if we're not invading Iraq? Oh, we're going to build a smart missile that targets people who aren't separating the recycling. <laughs> That's what a libertarian imagines the alternative for spending money on a war. McMegan taking a brave anti-recycling stance. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it just occurred to me. He's like, you're not looking at the knock-on effect of the Lockheed Martin employees going shopping. Can we, <laughs> can we cut out the fucking middleman then? Can we just have a universal basic income? They'll still go shopping and we don't need to make bombs for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thesis of this article is that it doesn't matter if you're, you're building a hospital or you're giving the money directly to Lockheed Martin. The effect is the same, you know, because whoever's getting the money is going to go shopping. Guess what? It grows the economy. Benefits everybody. Hurts nobody. Megan completely ignores the concept of a cost-benefit analysis. So if you spend the money on building a hospital or a public transportation system, you get the benefit of adding years to people's lives, taking time off their commute, reducing pollution, in addition to all the wages that the people who built it received. So not only do you get the same effect that you would give from Lockheed Martin getting money, but you also get the added effect of the thing that you built with the money and didn't just blow up. Back to McMegan. Nonetheless, when an economy is already working at full equilibrium capacity, war is likely to shrink the economy by redirecting its resources to inefficient and because much of what gets produced gets blown up, extremely wasteful uses. So this is her saying that the war is going to be good for the economy because World War II brought us out of the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. So she says, in 1939, the unemployment rate for the civilian labor force was 17.9%. Let's think about that. We've got our knickers in a twist because unemployment might top 6%. Their unemployment rate was three times 
times that, and a huge improvement from the 25% rate in 1933. Most production was far more labor-intensive back then than it is now. In other words, there was a huge reservoir surplus capacity in the United States. And the reason there was a reservoir surplus capacity was that consumer demand was extremely depressed. So she should be a fucking Keynesian, man. If she's like, <laughs> if she literally brings up how high it was in 33 and how it lo- was lower in 39. She should support like making the fucking national parks happen in the Tennessee Valley Authority, right? Oh, well, it's it's interesting you bring that up because she does she does say that her answer to anybody who thinks that, oh, well, if consumer demand is depressed, shouldn't we just spend this on things that improve our lives? But she defends that position by saying that an interesting side note to this is that Japan has essentially tried to do the same thing with massive government works projects. They didn't work so good in the New Deal and they aren't working so good in Japan. What's the difference? Well, one argument is that the massive debt required to finance the government works projects makes people so anxious about the future that any positive effect of the spending is effectively neutralized by the negative effect of the financing, which is a strange twist on the neoclassical model. In this view, only total war can sufficiently alter the economy to break the cycle. So you can't spend that money on dams because essentially you've cucked yourself by doing yeah, that. The, the, the vibes are so bad. Megan coming out with an interesting thesis. The hikimori in Japan are the product of anxiety about the national debt. That's, that's <laughs> why That's why they stay in their homes like hermits and fuck the pillows or whatever. <laughs> yeah, so her argument is that the government needs to, to spend money to make up for this like, drag in consumer demand, but you can't do it on public works projects because you're so anxious about the money that you're spending that you have to go to war because that's the only thing that essentially makes you not anxious about spending money. Yeah, how? How? How does that work? How does war make you less anxious? This is Megan again. Well, it's certainly not the Great Depression. A total war is not required to snap us out of the current doldrums. But then Iraq wouldn't be a total war either. If we assume that our natural rate of unemployment is currently a little over 4%, so while the war will probably be wasteful, I will doubt it will have as much of an effect one way or the other. It might give us a small boost. It might give us a small decline. It might do nothing noticeable either way. The crystal ball is cloudy. Then there's the fact that the decision to invade another country should rest on something more important than whether or not we think it can boost our national income by doing so. Oh, oh should it? Should it? <laughs> what the fuck is the point of this article? Yeah. Todd's go in, Todd's come out. Can't explain that. <laughs> The whole point of this article to Megan is that World War II brought us out of the Great Depression, but that works because it was a big war and it was a big recession. But we're currently in a small recession, so what we need is a small war. We yeah, can have a little war as a treat. She had recently seen the iconic Y2K meme, I can has cheeseburger, and it really informed her foreign policy take. Just fucking psychotic goblin shit. At no point has she mentioned the potential Iraqi death toll. She knows implicitly the asymmetry of what is about to go down, right? She's not terribly worried about American casualties in this thing, but she doesn't even bother thinking about the casualty rate in Iraq. Yeah, how much is it going to cost? Is it going to be good for the economy because it's going to boost our national psyche by killing people? Yeah, some real, it's a horrifying picture into her mind. I have a couple more articles. I'll read like the first sentence of this one. The administration is saying that they have proof that Iraq has links to Al-Qaeda. More and more, Ah! (laughs) I'm beginning to believe that the administration you know you know, you know who else has links to al-qaeda the fucking cia <laughs> and the saudis 
you know, I mean, just just putting it out there, like how many of the hijackers were Saudi? Just just asking questions, just asking questions. <laughs> Our good friends and allies in Pakistan has some pretty tight Al Qaeda connections. Everyone should also read The Management of Savagery by Max Blumenthal. <laughs> it's a book recommendation heavy episode. You can be as unhappy as we are. Yeah, I mean, in this article, she's basically saying that Bush is playing 4D chess because the administration has the information that links Al Qaeda to Iraq, but they're not releasing it. They're waiting until all the journalists come out and say that there is no connection before releasing it later, which is just like fan fiction for Megan McArdle to be, to be speculating that Bush has all this information that he's waiting for people to screw themselves over with. Yeah, when I think of guys who play 4D chess, it's the guy who traded away Sammy Sosa. He's really thinking about the long game. Just to round out Megan's take, she wrote an article a year after the war started saying, question of the day, will violence get better or worse or stay the same as the war goes on? I'm betting that it gets better. I think that the reason it gets better is because the terrorists seem so gosh darn determined to derail the handover. It seems likely to me that this is an all out push against the Americans for strategic as well as fundraising and recruitment reasons that cannot indefinitely be sustained. Her take here is that there is so much resistance to the U.S. in Iraq right now that it's a sign of desperation. <laughs> they're, they're trying so hard because it's all they have left and it's not sustainable. The night is darkest before the dawn. <laughs> the fact that she would undermine anybody else's credentials or, or like say that they're unsourced or not rooted in fact and then come out with a take, oh, this insurgency is going to wind down soon. This is something she wrote in 2004 because the intensity of their attacks is a sign that they're desperate and weak. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's terrible. It's awful. And she's, it's why I hate libertarians is that libertarians are just normal conservatives who like we, that's it. That's the only difference between them. The same motherfuckers who tell you, they'll quote Ronald Reagan. They'll be like, scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Support in the military. In that hypothetical, the government that they're scared of is like fucking DMV clerks or some shit. But this military industrial complex, fine with the libertarians, right? Fine burning all that money. I do have one more quote from Megan here. In which she just takes the mask off. We're in the Middle East because stable oil prices are, economically speaking, very, very important. This is why the U.S. will not, for the foreseeable future, stop throwing its military might around the Middle East, whatever the romantic ideations of the pacifist left and the isolationist right. <laughs> this is her just straight up, after all this debate about if it's going to be good for the economy because we'll be able to get our dicks hard, her just saying, like, <laughs> it would be impossible for us to not invade the Middle East because we need stable oil prices. Just say that. If that's how you feel don't get into this long argument about how we're going to get a great deal and it's yeah. actually going to grow the economy all right so let's wind the show down let's summarize ben how would you summarize joe scarborough's support of the war in iraq a hard dick savage let's go in man overconfident i guess is the one word i would use which it was all visceral though the reasons for going to to iraq were as a test of manhood or something was it like a teddy roosevelt style thing or oh i mean i'm i'm more cynical than most i think he supported it because it was personally lucrative to him. Mm -hmm. But 10 years later, he had something where he was criticizing millennials for not enlisting in the armed services and staying home and smoking weed and playing video games. But he himself never served. He is just cashing in 
well, whatever cultural moment of the time was. So 2003, his loud support of the war gets him a show on MSNBC. And then I, I read something from 06, from 11, from 14, from 17. And he just shifts with the wind. It goes from unquestionable WMDs to it's not a civil war. And if it is, it's the Democrats' fault to this was a war that could have been avoided to John Bolton shouldn't have a job because he still thinks Iraq was a good idea. That is the entire spectrum of opinions that Joe Scarborough has had over the past 20-ish years. In 10 years, he'll be a solderist. It's going to fucking rule. Oh, that's yes. Moktada al-Sadr. <laughs> Hero of resistance. I haven't looked into his politics. <laughs> yeah, he's an entertainer. That's largely what he does. And Megan McArdle, you know, I mean, we just heard from her, but essentially the war, you know, it's good. It's going to be a great deal and it's going to be good for the economy. Just like deeply inhuman, right? You, you never speak about the fact that how many innocent people are going to die. Yeah. And I think she's also comfy and lucrative and rewarded. In her case, it's not so much following the trends of the moment like Joe Scarborough did, who acknowledges, I'm like 75% of America. She gets her likes or outraged by producing the contrarian take, right? Which she is still doing to this day with her Grenfell Tower shit. It's devil's advocacy, right? (laughs) This was awful. If you joined us, we are sorry for reading so many bad takes at you. As always, my name is Ben. My co-host Jordano is here with me. And big thanks to our guest al from brooklyn thank you for joining us thanks for having me boys great to be here yeah sorry you had to read all this as we always say like subscribe write a review if you write a comment on the youtube we will read it try and hurt our feelings (laughs) do your worst (laughs) i know this is a pop culture podcast and we take a rather capacious view of what pop culture is this was part of the media that people were consuming at the time opinion writers and i think now what you see is that the op-ed is what mostly gets posted. The New York Times op-ed section will reproduce an opinion no matter how bad. Whether it's Tom Cotton saying, send the tanks in to crush BLM. This shit is still happening. But I think it really gets its strongest possible impetus in the early Y2K era with Iraq. So that's why we chose this topic. And I'm sure this will be not the last time we turn to the Iraq war. All right. So yeah, if you joined us, thank you so much. And we'll catch you next time. Ciao. Later. Have a good one, guys. To provide evidence that Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. So far, the UN has found nothing, but President Bush counters with this. This bought aluminum tubes! I need to tell you what the you can do with an aluminum tube. Aluminum! One trillion dollars could buy a lot of bling. One trillion dollars could buy most anything. One trillion dollars buying bullets, buying guns. One trillion dollars in the hands of killers, thugs. Whoa.